this is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, if we can connect you with a local church or a discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. If I said, this is the way, what would you think I was talking about? Or specific, amen. It's so good, especially if I did this. This is the way. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yep. Right, everybody knows, you just don't want to say it. <laughs> like, uh, John, Jesus? Uh, no. Uh, so in our culture today, there's a TV show that says this is the way. And when people say this is the way, a lot of times we think, okay, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Mandalorian. Yes, I'm a Star Wars fan. Like, we're in this together. It almost feels like a brotherhood. Like, yeah, I watched that too. Let's talk about it, right? Um, there should be things in our life that we do and say that people go, man, you're a Christian. Like, I understand the way more clearly. Christ, Christ Jesus is the way the truth, and the life. Like we understand, what does it look like to follow after the way when we see uh, Christians act this way and speak this way? Today I want to talk to you from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to preach this passage through, and we're going to find that there is no age and no situation in your life that exempts you from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And instead, every age and every situation can proclaim the gospel. No matter where you are and who you are and what season of life you are in, there is an opportunity to preach the gospel message of Jesus Christ by the way that you live and by what you believe. So this morning, I want to show you the gospel of Jesus Christ in contrast to what we've looked at over the past few uh, times that we've engaged Titus, which is the gospel of self, the gospel of prosperity, and the gospel of nationalism. How do we view uh, our lives uh, now that we've been transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ? What do our lives now look like? You see, because sound teaching is at the forefront of what uh, Paul is trying to tell Titus. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. This is the gospel in contrast to the Cretan teachings and ethics. Now remember, Crete, an island uh, right now um, ruled by Greece, was an island at that time that was known to be the worst of the worst by historians and philosophers. It was, uh, and we say this often because it, I mean, there were some really wicked cities back then, and very few were like pursuing after God or exemplifying biblical and good ethics. Uh, but at that time, Crete was known to be the worst of the worst, and I'm going to show you some of the, why it was known to be that way. But also, I want to show you that for a particular reason. Paul is speaking into the Cretan culture. To the teachers and to the philosophers, he's correcting their theology while laying down a proper theology. He's laying down the gospel in front of all these other teachings and saying, this is the truth, and this is how you should live. And so I want you to see Paul presenting a clear gospel presentation by what he says and by what he does. See, in Titus chapter 2, verse 1 and chapter 2, verse 15, which is the beginning and the end of this challenge to live different and believe different, he says a particular phrase that is important to us today. He says, but you are to proclaim things. And then in verse 15, he says, proclaim these things. You see, what we believe and what we do is proclaiming something. It's proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And so hopefully in God's grace, as a church, we are proclaiming the gospel by what we believe and by what we do. 
That is countercultural living. So I want you to see Paul's specific ethical challenges to the people of Crete through the pastor known as Titus. He doesn't package every single ethical uh, uh, belief or, or challenge to the church in one, right? We see Romans, we see 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Those are massive le- uh, letters in the Pauline corpus. They are, they are long and contain more uh, uh, writings and ethics than maybe Titus does, which is only three chapters and very short. Uh, but we see other ethical challenges throughout Scripture that aren't necessarily packaged into this passage. And so what we really find is Paul is specifically gearing this ethical challenge to this specific church. But, as we know, the Bible was written to them and for us. There is value here. It's inerrant, infallible. It's inspired by God. It's true. It is good for you and it's good for us to understand what this truth means for us today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Paul was saying to them and how it applies to us. And I'll tell you this, there's one overarching biblical ethic that will never change across generation, and it just is applied differently in different situations with different generations, and that is this. God has called us to love. And every situation is going to be handled through the lens of Christ's love on the cross. Your biblical ethics, remember this, your biblical ethics will be founded on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That love, that moment and act of love uh, determines every other biblical ethic we see throughout Scripture. And it culminates really in in, uh, them asking Jesus, what is the greatest law? When Jesus' response is what? To love God and love people. And so every biblical ethic that we can find, including in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is fueled by that foundation of love. So I'm going to read this passage to you, and then I'm going to show you historically and biblically what this passage can uh, meant, but also how it applies for us today. Now I'm going to ask you to do something important. Would you walk with this, uh, walk through this passage with me, right? Because there's going to be moments where you're going to be like, hold on, <laughs> you're going to want to revolt. You're going to want to walk out. Just stay with me, okay? See, we already lost our one. Hey, Ben, I love you. Uh, I'm kidding, man. <laughs> There's going to be moments where you're going to be like, oh, I don't know about this, right? Walk with me. Scripture is going to engage us and call us to love in a way that is countercultural, but it is good. And I hope to be able to show you that today. Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. But you are to proclaim things consistent with sound teaching. Older men are to be self-controlled, worthy of respect, sensible and sound in faith, love, and endurance. In the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excessive drinking. They are to teach what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, pure, workers at at home, kind and in submission to their husbands so that God's word will not be slandered. In the same way, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Make yourself an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. Your message is to be sound beyond reproach so that any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. Slaves are to submit to their masters in everything and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. And no age, remember this, no age and no situation exempts you from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Because every age and every situation can proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You see, the church at Crete had been stained by, the, by abusing their freedom in Christ. What they were essentially doing is they were saying, we are free, therefore we can do these things. 
A lot of times this comes from a very weak and watered-down gospel. You're going to see throughout this passage, in similarity to American church, uh, the American church today, uh, that when, a, when there is a false gospel or a watered-down gospel, a lot of times people live with a false uh, lifestyle or a watered-down lifestyle. This is what consistently happens uh, in, in the history of Christianity. If you water down the gospel, people will change the way they live according to that watered-down gospel. And so what we've often done as the church is, hey, raise your hand, come down, say you believe in Jesus, and you are good. You don't see that in Scripture. You won't find it there. It's not biblical, and it's not the call of Jesus Christ to lay down your life, take up your cross, and follow after him and deny yourself. That is not what the biblical portrait of following after Jesus looks like. And so I want to show you what it looks like specifically in Crete to follow after Jesus. They had failed to do this by using their freedom to tarnish the gospel in many different ways. I'll give you a specific way. One of them was that in Crete, which was ruled by Rome at the time, uh, they, they had households that were based off of certain uh, expectations. All right? So this was historical stuff. I'm just telling you historical things. All right? There was typically a man in the house, household, uh, a wife, children, and slaves. In that household, what typically happened was the man would choose the religion that everyone would abide by. All right, so typically the man would choose a religion and he would stick with it. It would either benefit him in society or he would be uh, giving towards it. He would sacrifice towards it. It would be part of his cultural identity. Uh, he, he usually didn't shift back and forth. But historically what did happen was uh, women and slaves would shift the reason is, is they would hear something new that could apply to their household. They would change their situation. You see, things were, were rough. Uh, Crete was a, was a wicked place. Uh, again, like the, the, the world saw them as the worst of the worst. And so slaves and women were trying to find a different way to live other than what they had been placed in. So as they brought new religions in, the men would say, because imagine what's happening here. The men have a solid religion. The women or slaves bring one in and they say, okay, we're going to live differently based on this ethic because I believe this. And so what do you think the men did? They shut it down. They would shut down preachers. They would shut down the gospel. They would tell their wives and their slaves, you cannot be Christians. They would burn the Bibles, burn letters. They wouldn't allow the preachers to preach in the synagogues and throughout the town square. And so what does Paul want them to do? It's not that he wants them to, to live different in the sense of just like, hey, you just need to obey your masters and obey your husband or something like that. It's that Paul knows as a prisoner himself that the way you live in every situation uh, is going to dictate how people view you in Christ and how they view the gospel. And so what he's challenging them to do is live according to the gospel. Because you see, here's, here's what happens in Crete. They were living different. When you believed in Jesus, you lived different. The problem is, the way that they were living differently was creating a biblical ethic. It was creating a way that people were like, oh, Christians live like that. And unfortunately, the way that they were living was not a picture of what Paul was challenging them to live like. It wasn't a picture of Christian ethics. And so you can imagine the cities going, no, 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 don't become a Christian. Christians live like this. Husbands, don't let your wives become Christians. Why? Because when women became Christians in that culture, in Crete specifically, men were always allowed to uh, have sex with other women when they were married, but the women were not allowed to have sex with other men when they were married. And then when Christian, uh, women became Christians, they said, I have freedom. I am now one. There's not 
uh, brother and sister, male and female, but instead, now I can do what I want with freedom in Christ, sexually and in relation to alcohol. They could do whatever they wanted, and so they went and got drunk and slept around, and the men are going, I don't want my wife to be a Christian. And so what do you think Paul's going to write back? Stop getting drunk. Stop sleeping around. Right? Okay, so let's look at it. I'm just giving you a couple historical uh, reasonings for why Paul wrote this, all right? He says, older men, be clear-minded, be worthy of respect, have self-control, and have the tree out of faith, love, and endurance. Why does Paul say this? That first one, uh, self-controlled, really means something like don't get drunk, okay? It, it essentially means have, have a mindset where you are able to make wise decisions whenever needed, don't make dumb decisions. And oftentimes, when uh, in Crete, they would get so drunk that they would, the older men and older women would get so drunk that they couldn't care for their household. And so what Paul is essentially saying is stay sober-minded so that you can make good decisions for your family. It is a law of love. It's an ethic of love to make good decisions. Because when you get drunk, you make poor decisions. That was what they, uh, they, they believed in the, uh, in the first century. And in just Rome in general with philosophy and such is that when, when you got drunk, you made bad decisions. So Paul's saying, okay, stop getting drunk because you're making bad decisions. All right? So be clear-minded. And then the second challenge, I, lo- I love this second challenge because it really is, it really gets to the point of what Paul's doing with this church, I think. He says, be worthy of respect. Why ought we, why should we be worthy of respect? Why should older men, and I just, I lumped myself in that category. I hope y'all saw that. Why should we, the older men, uh, be uh, worthy of respect? And here's why I lumped myself in that category. Older men, technically, in, uh, in that term, means like over 40, which I am not. Um, but it, Paul is not as concerned with age, uh, because older women, that term means something like over 50. Uh, it's not as concerned with age as it is concerned with relationship. All right? So there are men in here. I see Stephen right here in front of me. There's other men in this room, uh, even older men in this room, who I am pouring into, right? Rambo's in the back. He was in a D group with me. Uh, so I poured into these young men. And so what Paul is looking at is the relationship between an older man and a younger man, how they work together. Then he's going to look at the relationship between an older woman and a younger woman, how they work together. Then he's going to look at how a master and a slave relate together. So Paul's walking through what the household ought to look like in relationships, not simply age. And so the challenge here for older men is essentially to be worthy of respect or dignified in a way that you have a value to bring goodness into your community and into your family. That you have self-control and are clear-minded so that you can make wise decisions and discern what is good and right with self-control that makes the decision to do what is right. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what is right, given wisdom by God to do, to know what is right. And so men, we have a challenge here. We have a challenge to show our faith by what we do. And here's where, you know, especially for Crete, this is where I have a a really struggle with people that view the Bible through the lens, through our lens today, they view these passages. You look at Titus 2 and you view it, and some people will go, man, this is against women, this is uh, against slaves, these are all these different things, like they they view it negatively. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, here's the challenge, right? And my wife's sitting right here. here. Here's the challenge. I need, I want, I hope that she knows. 
I hope she knows if somebody comes against my family, my children or my wife, that I will defend her till the, till the moment of death. I will do anything to provide for her and take care of her throughout my life. If, if we need financially, I hope I can provide. If we need food, I hope I can provide. If she needs security, I want to provide that for her. If she needs emotional support, I hope I can provide that for her. I want to be the leader that she wants to follow. Look, this passage is not for men to go, oh yeah, see, women are supposed to submit to us and we have this kind of leadership that we can dominate everything. Where did we, what happened with leadership training in the church? How do you even, brothers, how do you even view this passage and go, okay, we're called to lead, Jesus led, okay, so I'm going to be a vicious emperor to my wife. I'm serious, like, Jesus was a servant who came and gave his life on the cross for his bride, washed her feet, when he washes his disciples' feet, he's basically saying this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve my church. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, to serve, not to be served. Every picture we have of Christ is giving up his life for his bride, and then all of a sudden we go, okay, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rule over my wife, dominate her. What? Where's that leadership training come from? And historically, how do we even view that? Like, if the, if the world is viewing the Bible and saying that their leadership in the Bible is dominating and that men are wicked and oppressive because of what the Bible says, you know who's made that mistake? We have. Not the Bible. And I'll show you. Let me show you why. The Bible tells men to be of worth and value in, uh, in, in society, a way of faith, love, and endurance, and self-control, and worth, and clear-minded, not getting drunk, so that people want to follow up after that, and not uh, are dominated underneath that in some capacity. It should be the desire for them. You know, the way, the way I see it biblically, uh, I think this passage challenges me biblically is this. At my wedding, um, 11 years ago, uh, in December, it was 11 years. My uncle took me to the side. I don't even know if you know this. I think you do. But my uncle took me to the side, and he's a Texas state trooper. And this man's like, he is a Texas state trooper. When you think of like Walker, Texas Ranger, that's him. You know what I'm saying? He is tough. He is uh, uh, right now vying for the world record in push-ups. I think he does like, I think it's like 3,000, 4,000 push-ups at one time right? He's probably going to watch this and correct me, like 7,000, but it's, it's insane, right? He's like 57, I think he is, and he's doing like three or 4,000 push-ups. This was 11 years ago. He is a strong man, right? And so when he takes me off to the side, he looks me in the eyes, and with no smile, no smirk, no sense of compassion, <laughs> looks at me, and he says this. This is all he says. Your wife eats first. That's all I said. Okay. What do I take from that? I grew up in the South. Your, your women eating first was a given. Like, he didn't have to tell me that. Yo, that, that's what's crazy about what he told me. He didn't have to tell me that. We always knew. There's no situation where you would go, all right, everybody eat. Men, get up there. Like, there's no situation where you do that in the South. If you do, you get shot or something. It's not, I'm not kidding. It's not good. If you ever come to Salt, you'll notice. I, I pray, and then I go, okay, girls eat. And, and like, our society kind of negatively views that sometimes. Like, you can get, like, reprimanded for that. Here's what my uncle was telling me. If there's food on the table, no matter how much you have, your wife eats and your children eat first. And if there's any left over, then you have some. But if there's not some left over, they eat first. 
It's called sacrifice, man. It's recognizing that we give our lives up for our bride and for our children. It's recognizing that if there's food on the table, they're going to eat first, and I might not eat. And I hope that my wife wants that, longs for that, desires that. And, and I hope that you will see that this is a biblical ethic built off of love because at the end of the day, I'm going to give my life to ensure that she has life. Built on love, not obedience, not requirements, but because I love her and I love my children. So he moves to older women. He says, he says in the same way, older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not slaves to excess of drinking. They're to teach what is good. And when you look at that, man, he's specifically talking to the church at Crete because older women specifically, not just old men, primarily older women had this ethic where it was okay for them to go get drunk out of their minds and let their families do whatever they could. Like they were done raising their kids, now go get drunk throughout the day, like hobbling around town, not taking care of their families. And, and, and I'm not kidding, that was socially acceptable and it became the norm for what happened when older women became Christians. I have freedom. I will go do what I want. This is what I want to do and abandon my family. So Paul writes back to them, what are you doing? Like, stop being slanders, using your mouth to, to cut down the church because they were uh, getting drunk. Usually the Bible pairs those two together. Your words are often dictated by what you drink in Scripture. And so he's saying, stop bashing the church, stop bashing your family because you're getting drunk and having irreverent behavior. Specifically to this church. Now, you may say, well, how do you know these things historically and stuff? There was actually a... Uh, Historians uh, write about this ethic that was around at that day. Uh, it's a Roman, it's Roman, but specifically in Crete. In Crete, it was totally acceptable and morally virtuous to beat and rob someone uh, on a road. Like it was like what they did, and it was acceptable to do it. So we look at these things in Scripture, and we're like, we judge them through the lens of our culture. Like, these are things that we've set up. We start judging those things, and I'm like, man, you, you need to understand what was in their culture. It was so wicked. And Paul, what Paul is saying is, stop doing that, because that's not what Christ would do. And so he moves to younger women. And he says, I love the challenge to the older women, right? Because a lot of times people say, well, women are to be silenced, women can't speak, and all these different things. And I'm like, well, actually, in Titus, which is a book about the church and how to have a healthy church, he actually tells, almost commands, uh, the older women to teach the younger women how to be godly women. Why? Because they were getting drunk, leaving, and not investing in the next generation of godly women. There is a strong expectation that we have biblical, godly women investing in the next generation of moms and wives throughout the church. And so you get to this, these young women, and it says, teach them, uh, encourage them to be young women who love their husbands, love their children, have self-control, pure, workers at home, kind in submission to their husbands. Man, this, is, uh, this has been just battered by culture. This idea of submission to their husbands and workers at home. I want to give you, I just want to show you a glimpse of why that's just, it's pure insanity to view scripture that way. Okay, does anybody know when infant formula was created? If you weren't in another sermon. 1865. 
Okay, 1865. Before 1865, they would utilize other means for infant formula. If you could not produce, if you could not provide for your baby, they would have uh, cornmeal mixed with like almond flour and boil it, or goat's milk or cow's milk. Those are kind of your three options, uh, depending on what like, uh, culture you're in. Well, it wasn't really, they are, as you can imagine, those aren't great options for your children, okay? It's not healthy for your baby to be surviving off of those things. So what would often happen is uh, children would pass away. And the, and the reason for it is, is uh, they would have like 12, 15 children, and statistically a quarter to a half of those children would pass away before they were eight years old. So they had many children in hopes that some would survive. Okay? This is a different culture than you are in, right? But we need to understand their culture. There's not infant formula, and they're having 12 to 15 children. All right, for my moms in the room, what does that mean? Right? You know way better than I. I'm, I'm, it's dangerous for me even speaking up here right now in this moment. I get that. But I know my wife, and I love my wife, and I, I saw how she raised our children, and I love how she's raised our children. So it, remember this. If you have 12 to 15 years, 12 to 15 kids, that's probably not 12 to 15 years. That's probably something like 20 to 25 years of childbirth. In that 20 to 25 years of childbirth, you are feeding your children. And when you are feeding your children, you don't have the opportunity to work outside of the home. And here's why. And this is, man, this is so critical. I hope you hear this so clearly. And this just like, man, this, I hope you will study the history of Scripture so well. What uh, slaveholders were doing during that day to, their, to slaves, were, especially slave women, if they had children, they would force the women to go and work. What men would do, husbands who had wives and they didn't want children, they would force the women to go work. So what happens? Children die. Guys, when Paul writes to this church, he's, te he's teaching them to love children and to love their husbands. Why? Because of love. We miss this so much because we view it through the lens of our own culture. If there's no infant formula and there's not the opportunity for the mom to take care of the children by staying at home and working at home rather than being forced, forced and enslaved to work outside of the home, then how do you sustain life? I mean, come on, the, the verses are all about love and life and what we do is we twist it into our own culture and act like it's some kind of hate message towards women. It's not. It's a love message towards children and a responsibility of men and women to care well for their families. So when it says be workers at home, kind workers at home, not, not angry about the fact that you have to work at home, not angry about the fact that you love your husbands and you love your children, rather have a love ethic, an ethic where it says, I'm going to love my family and provide for them. Because again, what were young women doing? What were older women doing? Amen. Getting drunk and abandoning their requirements, abandoning what they could do at home to provide for their children. They were abandoning their responsibilities by getting drunk and forgetting their families. You know, that's, it's terrible. And that's what Paul is writing into. And if we don't know that, sometimes we read these things and we're like, wow, that's, that's kind of aggressive. Well, it's, yeah, for your culture, because we have infant formula and because we're, we have daycare and they didn't, we have all these opportunities that they didn't have. So it's not healthy for us to view our culture back into theirs and then make assumptions based on what Paul is saying. And what I want to do, I hope you see so beautifully throughout this passage is that Paul is building a family who loves one another. You see this, this verse, uh, 
submission to their husbands. We, we view that, again, as I talked about earlier with older men and younger men, we view that and we're like, oh yeah, women should just submit to their husband. Well, hold on. What else did Scripture say about submit? Who else is supposed to submit? Christ, who gave himself up, sacrificed himself to the church. But then it says, church is to submit itself to Christ. And then it says that the church is to submit itself to one another. Right? So now I'm submitting myself to Chris. Right? Like now we have this biblical ethic within the church that we're like giving our lives up for one another and we're submitting our other, uh, to, to the better good of the church, encouraging one another to grow up in Christ and using our gifts to bless one another. And we're learning more and more what it's like to learn and love and grow together as a church body. And so often we look at this passage and we're like, oh man, women are supposed to submit to their husband. Well, yes, we're all supposed to be submitting. And in fact, I think I would agree with most biblical writers today who would say that the, the bigger challenge is not to the women. The bigger challenge is to the men. Live in a way that women want to submit to you? Oh, come on now, that's a challenge. Sacrifice your life for your bride? There's a bullet coming, I'm stepping in front of my wife and, and giving up my life every single time? I gotta die for her, just like Christ died for the church. It's a, it's a biblical ethic of love where we give ourselves for one another. It's not... Uh, creating a dynasty of, of abuse and domination over women. It's, it's what we did. It's what 17th century, 18th century, 19th century uh, did to this biblical ethic. It's twisting it. Let's rewrite it. Love one another. Care for one another. Care for your children and love your children and provide what they need. And so then he challenges young men. It's really rather short, but it's Paul to Titus. Titus is a young man, and now he's uh, writing to Titus to talk to other young men about being self-controlled and having integrity in their life. He says this. He says, encourage the young men to, uh, to be self-controlled in everything and make yourselves an example of good works with integrity and dignity in your teaching. All right, I'm going to say something. You're going to remember this, and nobody else, like it's, everybody's going to take this home with them, all right? And this is going to be one thing that everybody carries with them, and I don't want you to. But it's happened in every service. So I'm just going to say it. You know, oftentimes what happens in the church is we have this, uh, we have people come to the church and they'll, they'll, they'll cuss or something. They'll, they'll say a cuss word. And they'll look at me and they'll like deer in the headlights. They'll look at me and go, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have cussed in church. And I say the same thing every single time. I say, if you're going to cuss at home, cuss at church. And I hold on. <laughs> Don't leave. I have like people texting about this. This is causing a little spark. Um, here's the thing. Here's, here's why I say that. Our ethic is built on integrity. It's built on love and self-control and integrity and, 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 and uh, the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's built on all these things that if, if we, we ought to be, young men, ought to be who we say we are. Who you say you are is what you ought to do. Be who you are, right? That's clear and evident. So what does it say when we like walk into a church, cuss, and go, oh, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have cussed at church. What does it say? It says, like, the presence of God is here and not at home. What is that? That's not biblical. It's not New Testament, right? Like, the Holy Spirit's everywhere. Y'all with me? So what, is that, what does that even mean? The Holy Spirit's in the church, but not at home? Well, then you need to probably change your home life. So then, what, okay, so think about it like this, then. Let's take it one step further. 
people use different cuss words, and I'm not going to use one right now because then I really might get fired. Uh, <laughs> but like, let's say you use a word like jerk, but you say it in like a way that you shouldn't say it in stage or something. And you say this word, and everybody views it really negatively and all that different stuff, and you say it about people. Let's say that we have a person who people constantly say is, is, is like a jerk. Like he's just mean at home. He's mean at, at his workplace. He's abusive to his family and his children. He doesn't take care of them. He just does what he wants to do and doesn't lead his family well. Like he's not like a Jesus servant. He's more of like that vicious emperor where he just lays down the rule and everybody has to follow. And if they don't follow, they get hurt. All right, let's say we have that. What happens in the church? What does it look like? Here's what it looks like. If you say, I cuss at home and I don't cuss at church, and I'm not giving you a biblical ethic of cussing right now, okay? If I, I cuss at home, but I don't cuss at church. What does that also say about how you live at home when you live at church in relationship to being a jerk? Oppressive and abusive to your family. It's like at home, like you can do whatever you want. You can be however you want. But as long as you come to church and just, just tone it down, let's just get through the service, get out of here so nobody sees what's going on in our life. What is that? It's not biblical. And so that's what Paul's challenging here is like have an integrity in your life where who you are at home is who you are at the church. And that's like that, that's why, Pastor Kim, we got to be raw on the stage. You might, sometimes you might say like, man, I think you guys are a little bit too much sharing. Like I, I hope that that's kind of your tension. I hope that you're kind of like, man, why do these pastors share that they struggle too? It's because we struggle and we want you to know that if you're struggling at home, you don't have to come in here and act like you're not. Be real. We're going to have to walk through. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy. It's, it might be a little embarrassing. Might, might be some, there might be some uh, struggle internally as you walk through it. You might feel like you want to give up and you're defeated. But man, it's better to have integrity to walk through these things and to hide them from everybody else. And I think that's what this is supposed to look like, young men, that we have an integrity. That we, who, we are, who we say we are at home is who we are at church. And he concludes with... Verse 9 and 10, he says, Slaves are to submit to their masters and everything, and to be well-pleasing, not talking back or stealing, but demonstrating utter faithfulness so that they may adorn the teaching of God our Savior in everything. I want to give you a bit of a historical, uh, some historical information and then an overarching biblical ethic of slavery uh, that we see here. Okay, first, historic, historically, slavery in Rome is very different than slavery we experienced in the 17th, 18th, 19th century in America. All right? The slavery was very different. Here's, here's one, a couple different ways it was different. First, it was not ethically bound. There wasn't like nationality. Certain nationalities were enslaved and certain ones weren't. Uh, it was everybody. Um, people of all different types of nationalities. It was also accepted in culture. Uh, all, like everyone accepted it. Most everyone accepted it. Philosophers really didn't push back on against. Publicans didn't push back against it. Uh, it was just kind of accepted in culture in those days. There was also three different types of slaves. So we think about like slavery as one. Uh, there was different types of slavery in Cretan culture and really Roman culture. And that was there was gladiator slaves uh, who would be forced to go and fight one another. There were farm slaves who would work on like agriculturally. Uh, it was not good. Uh, gladiator slaves was really really bad. Like they would die like really quickly. Um, they would get mortal wounds or, or kill each other literally on the, uh, in the gladiator arena. And then uh, there was a third one that was like house slaves. Now, they were all different. They kind of, they, they were vastly different. They had different responsibilities. But one of the things about house slaves was they were really, they, ha they carried the same um, social status, cultural status, as the house did. They were really part of the family unit. A lot of times they were there because they were either sold into it or because they had a debt. 
Um, often it was a debt, so they couldn't pay this debt, and so they had to work in this way. How do we say this? And this is much milder, so I don't want to really uh, equate it, but we say, if you can't pay for your meal, you have to be a dishwasher. Like, not, not really a good thing to say, but at the same time, that's kind of what they did. They owed a debt, and they're like, I don't have a way to pay for it, so I'll be enslaved to you for this, this amount of time. It's not a great thing, okay? I'm not trying to give you, like, that this is okay or acceptable, but it's different, okay? So we need to see it as it is, all right? At 30 years old, they were freed. Uh, it was like mandatory freeing. When they were freed, they had access to the money of the house. They had access to the health of the house. It was a different type of slavery, but it's still not good. It was still enslaving people. And wh- why, here's why I'm telling you this. Paul's addressing household slaves. He's addressing slaves within the house. And what he's not doing is developing a biblical ethic of oppression, Okay, This is not where we're going to find in Scripture how to combat oppression and combat abuse. This is not how we find in Scripture how the government should combat those things. Okay, When we read this, what we're finding is how Paul, a prisoner who was enslaved, who knew what it was like to be whipped, who knew what it was like to be hurt, to be oppressed, he knew and understand what it felt like to be a prisoner in Rome. This is what Paul was saying to people who were stuck in a situation that was difficult. How to be faithful in the midst of persecution. How to be faithful in the midst of oppression. Now you may say, well, I don't like it. But here's the thing. You, can't, you cannot say that Paul was not against it. You cannot say that Paul was not fighting against it. You might disagree with his methods. His methods was love rather than fight. His methods was, was uh, to transform the master rather than to fight him. Then the hopes was that the master's heart would be transformed and to uh, free the slave rather than to fight the master and, and try to escape because that often left to the, led to the slave's death and their family's death, if not. And so Paul was trying to give them a different ethic. But this is not saying that Paul was not uh, against oppression and abuse. I'll give you four biblical principles why we can say that. First, masters should treat their slaves justly and fairly. It's a, it's a clear ethic that uh, uh, there should be justice and treating, treating fair and, and, and being kind. It's Colossians 4.1 and Colossians 3.25 kind of backs that up by saying, wicked masters will receive judgment. If you do wicked things towards those who are within your house, you will receive judgment. Let's take it further. He says, okay, within that, in the household, slaves are going to uh, treat their masters with respect. Titus 2, 9 through 10. They're going to they're live faithfully to Christ in the midst of that. Christ knows what it's like uh, to be mistreated and to be unfairly treated. Paul knew what it was like in the same way. And in both ways, they were seeking to transform via love and faithfulness rather than being via uh, fighting back. It's a different method, but it's for the same outcome. And here's why, all right? Philemon, verse 8. And we can see it here so clearly that what Paul was actually doing in here is so good for us. Look at it, Philemon 8. So it essentially says this. He's talking about freeing, freeing uh, one of his brothers in Christ who is enslaved. He says, I want you to do this out of love. I want you to free your brother in Christ out of love. Why? Because our brothers and sisters in Christ are not slaves. We are part of the family of God. We love one another. So he's, he's challenging him. Free your slave. But, he says, I want you to do this because you love him, not because I made you do it. You see the difference there? 
Paul's trying to create an ethic of love throughout the community where it's not just he's forced to free him and then still is oppressing other people and hurting other people. He wants a transformation of heart which then frees and helps, cares for, grows, and invests in that person for the rest of their life. Like it's, it's generating this kind of love towards one another that is bigger than just obedience. Paul doesn't say, stop doing that. He says, I hope you'll do this out of the love in your heart. And then he goes one step further. I love this. He goes, <laughs> I don't remember if I said this because I've already preached two times. So I may have said this, but he does go one step further. He says, I hope you'll do this out of love, but if you won't, I'll command you to do it. Right? I hope you'll do this out of love, but if you don't, I'll command you to do it. Like he has that kind of apostle, apostolic uh, um, freedom and authority to be able to say, do this out of love, and if you won't, I'm going to tell you you have to do it. I mean, I hope we don't miss that in the church today is where, is where Paul was actively fighting against this, but he was doing it while keeping and maintaining faithfulness throughout the household. And he was doing it in a way that everybody was still loving one another. And he was doing it in a way that hopefully would transform the head of the household. These men in their culture, the head of the household, if you transform them, it often lead to transforming the whole house. So he was working in a way that would inspire love throughout the family. Why? Because love is the foundation to Christian ethics when Jesus says it, that we'd have love for one another. And so, I mean, I hope that you see this more clearly. I hope that you see how God has instructed his church to have love for one another. There was failures inside of the church at Crete, and there's failures inside of the American church today. When we weaken the gospel, it leads to uh, false living and false gospel. So I have three reminders for us today from this passage. Let's not water down the gospel, because if you water down the gospel, people leave the church. You look at the past 100, 200 years, and you're like, look at what America, uh, the, the church in America, as it was growing, and, and you kind of go, what happened? What did we do? People will call, say a lot of different things. But if you break it down, I think it's the same thing as what Titus says. And if it, like, we have it in the Bible, so we don't have to, like, go far-fetching ways and, like, say, well, is this, is this, is this. Just look at Scripture. What does Scripture say? They water down the gospel. They believed false gospels and put it up above the gospel. And then what they do next? They live false lives. They didn't live according to the gospel. What have we seen over the past 100, 200 years in America? We see the church not being any different than the world. We say, we come in here and we say we believe in Christ and we walk out there and we look totally different. Not like Christ, but totally different. And so that's what I mean. And people take it away, but that's what I mean when, like, be who you are in church as you are out there. And in the hopes that in here you look like Christ, because out there you look like Christ. And so my challenge stays the same. The gospel should change the way we live, and that will proclaim the gospel to the world, because no age and no situation exempts you from the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, and every age and every situation can proclaim the gospel. So will you proclaim the gospel by the way that you live? My gospel response for you this morning is this. Search the scriptures for biblical ethics. This takes work. I mean, this is not easy. Be like the Bereans. Study scripture hard. I've got our young adults on Sunday nights studying the scriptures to find a biblical ethic. of One particular biblical ethic, what does it say about it? Y'all, this takes work. If we want to build young men and young women who understand what they ought to do and do it, then we're going to have to search the scriptures. And that takes work. But if you're going to build your life upon the Bible, I hope that you would know it. And second, root your ethics in the gospel. 
If we're, again, I, I, say, I said this at the beginning, I want to just remind us of this. If Christ lived the life that we couldn't live in perfection, He died the death we should have died by taking on our condemnation, and He raised from the dead so that we can raise too. Let, this is why it roots it in there. It roots all ethics in love, and the greatest act of love was the cross. And so now we look back at the cross and go, okay, that kind of love and that kind of sacrifice is how I ought to live in relationship to my children, in relationship to my wife, in relationship to my staff and my church and the culture. I'm going to operate in the same way that Christ did as he died on the cross for his church, for his bride. And so we root our ethics in the gospel, in the cross of Jesus. And then finally, the gospel changes people. You match your life and your words up to the gospel and to what the gospel does in your life. You match those two things up, it's going to change the world. That's what, God, that's what Jesus did. We talked about it last week, gospel of nationalism, gospel of prosperity, gospel of self. You want to, you want to counteract that? You want to go counterculture to that? The gospel changes your life by what you speak and by what you do, and that will change people's lives. And so church, as the worship team comes up, I hope that in God's grace, no matter where you are and no matter what relationship dynamic you are in, you'll view it through the lens of love. How can you love one another? I want to submit to you as my church to love you well, sacrifice my life for you, giving up my time, my talents, and my treasure to ensure that the gospel message is flourishing in this church, as well as with my family and my brothers and sisters who walk beside me and my staff. You join me in doing so. What does it look like for you to love like Christ on the cross? Today, maybe like Crete, it means men, you got to have some integrity. You haven't, you, haven't been, you haven't had integrity in your life. You're one way at home, you're a different way at church. Maybe you've forgotten how to, how to serve one another. Maybe you've forgotten how to, to provide for one another. Men, men maybe, maybe you've been called to lead your family and you haven't been leading in a way that has been Christ-centered, but rather has been culturally centered. You had this idea of leading that's so altered. Let's rewrite the way that our city views the gospel. And let's write it the way that the gospel was accurately presented. That is what Paul called Titus to do. Let me pray for you. God, uh, would you change our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you help our minds to see your gospel message more accurately, to understand biblical ethics according to what uh, it truly is and not what this world says it is? Would you help us to generate in, within us a love for one another that embodies that biblical ethic? I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate Scripture to us so we can understand it and give us the strength to live out what it's called us to do. So, Father, work in the life of our church that we might proclaim the gospel by the way that we live. We love you in your son's name. Amen. You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.